Uh, well, if you have a confession of faith, you can turn to chapter 10. If you don't have one, you can't turn there. Um, so you might need to get one. The, the blue basket of truth is up atop the fridge. We're, we're in chapter 10 of effectual calling. Uh, you'll remember last time we looked at uh, of free will. And we noted that that chapter 9 of free will is, is something of a, of a helpful transitional chapter that bridges the content of the first eight with the content uh, of the latter portion of the confession in that the first eight chapters bring, uh, brings forth, the first eight chapters bring forth uh, the doctrine of God, His decree and covenant and the champion of the covenant Christ. Um, so encapsulating the, the God and the champion of the covenant of grace, uh, chapter 9 speaks to something of the fact of where man is found with respect to the covenant of grace and the various states that man finds himself relative to that. Um, so it bridges, if you will, chapter 8, the work of Christ, to chapters 10 through 13 more immediately, but also through to 20, and the application of the benefits uh, won for us by the perfection of the work of that mediator in chapter 8. And so chapter 10 begins the, that section of the, the benefits of redemption, the benefits won for us by Christ, and the application of those benefits to the elect. So I'll read chapter 10 as it uh, is uh, on effectual calling, paragraphs 1 through 4, and then we'll have a look primarily at the stuff of paragraphs 1 and 2, but we'll make a uh, a brief note of the uh, paragraphs 3 and 4 as well. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them uh, giving unto them an heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with His special grace, the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in, in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved, 
be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. Amen. Well, we're going to spend most of our time in paragraphs 1 and 2 where we have first a definition of effectual calling and secondly the power involved in effectual calling. Um, there's so, there is so much, there are so many clauses in just paragraph 1 that should, should bring to our minds a number of blessed passages that we rehearse as Christians when we reflect upon our own salvation, when we reflect upon the God of that salvation and the grace of that salvation, knowing that it's not we who saved ourselves, but it is God alone who saved us. If you'll remember that, that quote from C.H. Spurgeon last Lord's Day where he talks about the fact that when, uh, when the angels sang glory to God in the highest as they're, they're witnessing the, the nativity of Christ, uh, Spurgeon notes that the angels were no Arminians. They sang glory to God in the highest. Uh, and he goes on to say something like, uh, the, the angels saw that it is God first, God last, God midst, and God without end in the salvation of sinners. And they put the crown holy and alone upon the head of Him who saves without a helper, Jesus Christ. And we have here in paragraphs 1 and 2 the, the blessed reality of effectual calling that the, this blessing of the covenant of grace, this blessing of the new covenant, the covenant of grace ratified by Jesus Christ, this blessing of the new covenant comes to sinners dead in their trespasses and sins. It finds elect sinners dead in trespasses and sins, wholly unable, wholly disabled by sin in all the faculties of soul and body. It finds them there, and by the power, that same power which raised Christ from the dead, that same divine power that was present at the creation when God called all things into existence, that same power is the power that brings dead uh, sinners to life by virtue of the perfection of Jesus Christ. And so it's a, it's a blessed chapter to, to rehearse and, and to study because it's a study of God uh, finding us dead in sin and raising us to life in Christ. Um, so the first thing we want to note, if we have a look at paragraph 1, the definition of effectual calling, you'll notice the beneficiaries of effectual calling. And we see it here, those whom God hath predestinated unto life. Uh, so God, the, the blessed and great benefactor, blesses those who are predestinated unto life with effectual calling. Now this ought to bring to our minds the the order of salvation, and perhaps a particular text you can turn to, uh, is Romans chapter 8. Wonderful, wonderful chapter that uh, some have called that golden chain of, of redemption or salvation. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, He effectually calls. There's this inviolable chain of redemption that God, uh, that God brings about that reaches back into eternity and connects back to the very decree of God. Notice in, in Romans 8, beginning at verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. So we'll just pause there for a moment and notice the language of our chapter this morning, the called. Now, there is a, another type of calling that the confession brings out in paragraph 4, 
that the Bible, of course, brings out also um, within its pages, and we'll, we'll get there in a moment. But this called, according to his purpose, is effectual calling. So, who are called according to his purpose. Now notice, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, so there we have that blessed golden chain of salvation, the golden chain of, of redemption. There is again this inviolable uh, linked chain between the predestination of God unto glorification by God uh, in the last. So we have this language though of our confession in verse 30, moreover, those, uh, moreover whom He predestined, these He also called. So all whom God has predestinated unto life according to the good pleasure of His will, in due time, as the, as the confession says, in His appointed and accepted time, He brings forth uh, ineffectual calling to life, uh, to life in Jesus Christ. So um, those who are the beneficiaries of effectual calling are those whom God hath predestinated unto life. And this ought to, uh, to bring us back to um, a particular chapter and paragraph if you turn back to chapter 3. Remember, when we, when we come to each chapter, we, we ought not to consider that chapter just in a, in a, a vacuum all its own. There, there is a, a blessed interconnectedness to the chapters in the confession, those that follow, those that precede, uh, uh, etc. And we have in chapter 10 the fact that the uh, confessionalists are drawing from doctrines previously explicated in, uh, in chapters that, uh, that preceded. So notice in, in chapter 3, paragraph 6, as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ. And you'll see there that it goes on to read with regards to all of those uh, inviolable links that follow in the blessed chain of redemption. So those whom God has predestinated unto life, uh, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call. So we, we must note that all those predestinated, all of that, that same blessed and innumerable body of, uh, of elect sinners are also those who are effectually called. In other words, uh, there, is, there is no one lost between predestination and effectual calling. All those predestinated unto life are in due time, God's due time, effectually called. So the beneficiaries of effectually calling are those predestinated unto that very calling. Notice secondly that this this predestination unto effectual calling is not some sort of blind, faded reality. The, the language is, is wonderful here. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call. This is, yes, the language of sovereignty. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. But it also carries the, the language of the fact 
that God is most loving, most gracious, most merciful. And again, if we can draw a connection back to the second chapter, you can turn there with me. Because again, this, this predestination unto uh, a subsequent reality wrought in time is not some sort of blind, faded reality. Notice the language in, um, in paragraph 1 of chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity. If we move down a little bit, sort of uh, maybe halfway through the paragraph as we see it here, um, we see that God is every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory. Now notice, and this most qualifies all of these other words that follow, most loving, most gracious, most merciful. And so when we think about this language in chapter 10 of effectual calling, that God is pleased to effectually call, we ought to see that reality that God is most loving, most gracious, and most merciful. And this language comes from the very text of Scripture. You can turn with me to the book of Ephesians for a moment. That wonderful uh, opening portion as Paul is speaking about uh, God uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who exercises perfect redemption by amazing grace through uh, triune glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we work through the language of that, we find this language of good pleasure, the good pleasure of God. Notice in uh, notice uh, beginning at verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. And notice as well in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure. This captures not just sovereignty, but the very character of God, the very perfection of God, uh, that language to be preferred, those perfections where He is most loving, most gracious, and, and most merciful. And then we have this reality of the sovereign decree and providence of God in the languages. These wonderful clauses mount one on top of the other. Um, the language continues. He is pleased in, notice, His appointed and accepted time effectually to call. Um, it's not in our appointed and accepted time. As we read through the confessional language here, built upon, of course, the, the biblical language, as we read through the language here, we'll see negative, negatively that it doesn't have anything to do with the power or agency of men. Um, it has everything to do with the power and the agency of God, and it has everything to do with God's appointed and accepted time. So this ought to draw our minds back into eternity past, to use that language, and the decree of God, His election and predestination, where uh, He has decreed that at a particular point in time, um, His elect sinners are brought forth from deadness to life. 
It's a wonderful thing. And as we, as we pray, as we, um, as we preach, uh, as we minister, uh, as we preach the gospel to our children, to our, to our loved ones, we're to have great confidence in this truth. Imagine if uh, the confidence was to rest, even if, just, even if just in part, upon the sinner himself. Uh, that's the, the madness of loss, uh, the, the madness of folly to, to, to have to put confidence in the recipient of the proclamation rather than the one who gives power in proclamation. And so it is appointed, it is given with respect to God's appointed and accepted time. Uh, he effectually calls according to his good pleasure and his own timing. Praise God that that's the case, um, because if it were not, uh, all would be lost. And notice there is power and instrumentality in um, ineffectual calling. The language is that uh, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. Well, actually, before we get to power and instrumentality, let's just pause for a moment at the language of <coughs> effectually to call. It's the name of the chapter, and, and what does that mean? Well, effectually captures the language of uh, successful in producing an intended result. So when we, when we use this language of effectual, um, we want to carry the, the synonymity of perfect. It perfectly carries out the intention of something. So God effectually calls. He doesn't, he doesn't fail when He calls. He's effectually calling. And so He brings forth all from deadness to life that He has intended to bring forth from deadness to life. It is an effectual calling. The, uh, if we're thinking with regards to the doctrines of grace, the, uh, uh, the tulip, we would be thinking of irresistible grace here. That the Spirit does not fail in bringing forth those predestinated unto life in the call. He effectually calls them. And then we have this power and instrumentality by His Word and Spirit. There's, there's a, a, a twofold emphasis here on, uh, on instrumentality and power. The Spirit works with the Word in bringing forth those who have been uh, predestinated unto life. We can turn to our Bibles to a couple places, um, not exhausting the places, but you can turn with me first uh, to the book of James. To see what the confession is speaking about here. Again, the confession isn't adding to biblical language. It is giving us theological conclusions based upon the Bible. And so it has the Bible in the background when it is setting forth these articles and clauses. And we can see in James 1, uh, beginning, at verse seven, uh, beginning at verse 17, uh, well, verse 16, James 1.16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now notice, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a, a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. See that language, first off, of the divine will. Divine sovereignty in the matter of salvation of his own will, he brought us forth. And this bringing forth is effectual calling. He brings us forth from deadness to life. He brings us forth from darkness to light. 
He effectually calls us, and that effectual calling comes by the word of truth. And so we can see here in, in the confession, this effectual calling is by His word and spirit. We see this captured there in, uh, in James 1.18. You can turn as well to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, at verse 22, we have similar language. It's, the language is different, but the meaning is the same. Notice in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 22, "...since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart." Now notice, "...having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible." through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. So we have power and instrumentality. The power of God, the power of the Spirit, the power here of incorruptible seed through the instrumentality that is the Word of God which lives and abides forever. So we have this blessed reality that God works by His Word to bring forth sinners from deadness to life. This is why the confession uh, here at the end in paragraph 4 and also in, uh, in chapter 20 speaks with regards to the fact that men cannot be saved outside of the Christian religion because it is the Christian message of uh, a living and dying and rising again Christ. It is that Christian message of the gospel that must be proclaimed enjoined by the Spirit's power if anyone is to be brought from deadness to, to life. And so we have this wonderful instrumentality, this incorruptible seed uh, working with the Word of God which lives and abides forever to bring forth dead sinners uh, to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice there is a particular state in which effectually, uh, effectual calling finds elect sinners. Notice the language continues here. By His Word and Spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they were by nature. So effectual calling finds elect sinners in that state. We noted that, that particular state in the previous chapter. If you just turn back to 9 for a moment. Notice 9.3. Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So we have that state that effectual calling finds elect sinners in. It is that state of sin and death in which they are by nature. And that is, that is why we sing Amazing Grace and we can sing so, uh, so joyfully that we are, are lost and then found. We are blind and then are given sight by divine uh, glory, love, mercy, grace, and power. We are in a state of sin by nature, wholly unable to work ourselves unto God. And we'll get to that language of, of working unto God when we get to, to paragraph 2. But that is the state in which effectual calling finds elect sinners. But there is, praise God, a state to which effectual calling places elect sinners. Notice the next clause. To grace and salvation 
by Jesus Christ. So out of that state of sin and death, and then to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Now, we, we ought to, to note, um, when we were reading from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 there, he uses the language of, uh, of born again. Effectual calling, if we're, to, if we're to have biblical language in the background, the language of Christ to Nicodemus should be in the background. Uh, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom, of co- uh, the kingdom of God. Effectual calling is being born again, is being, uh, is being born from above by God. Man, as paragraph 2 will say, being wholly passive therein, and God, uh, God bringing them forth from deadness to life. So born again, also Paul's language of being made alive. Uh, Paul's language of being made alive that he uses in, in the book of Ephesians, this is synonymous with, it's the same language that Jesus uses when he says born again, uh, the same language that, that, that John uses, the same language that we just mentioned Peter uses. So there's this, uh, this wonderful, you know, sort of, uh, you know, variegated gem of redemption that we have in the Bible with these different phrases and words to, you know, calculated to capture the richness of divine salvation by our triune God. And so we have made alive, we have born again. All all of that language speaks with regards to effectual calling. And we also have similar language based on on what we find here in the the confession of conveyed or, or transferred. Notice the language here, from a state to a state. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, and then to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians that God has transferred us or conveyed us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so we have that blessed language of divine conveyance in the background uh, as well. Um, The confession goes on, and notice, notice what God does in effectual calling. So we have this you know, this definition of, uh, of effectual calling that we're working with, we have this, uh, this transfer from a state to a state. And then in this effectual calling, what does it look like? What is its character or what are its characteristics? Well, notice this wonderful clause here, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. So it's wonderful language that captures an element of effectual calling beforehand we were without understanding beforehand uh, our minds were marked by darkness Uh, as pastor butler has been preaching through the book of ephesians he's had many good occasion to call our minds to that reality in in ephesians chapter 4 where paul has moved from theology to 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 practicality to the practical application what does it look like to be one who has been effectually called And the language of the Gentiles is that they walk in the darkness of their mind in in, uh, without understanding, lacking understanding. We're not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So God brings us from the futility of mind to minds that are enlightened, spiritually, savingly, and He gives us the grace, uh, the strength, the, the spiritual wherewithal to understand the things of God. We, we don't understand the things of God because we're so smart, because we're so great, because we're you know, better than our, our neighbors and, and better than those, those horrible pagans. 
It doesn't rest upon our power and our might. It rests upon the might of God who comes to dead sinners, makes them spiritually alive, and by that same Spirit uh, that, uh, that effectually calls, enlightens it in that act, and even following that act, illuminates our minds and makes us to understand greater the things of God. That same language is used of the disciples after having been saved, um, so you know the, the disciples uh, are saved at the point of the, the resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the eleven um, are Christians. We read the language that Christ opens up their minds that they might understand the Scriptures. So it, the enlightening and the illumination and the understanding of the things of God, that obtains at the point of effectual calling, but it's also ongoing in the life of sanctification that God enlightens our minds. And when we come into the, the, the worship on the Lord's Day, uh, we ought to be praying for that. And we do pray for that, that God, that the Spirit would enlighten our minds, that He would illuminate our minds, that we might understand the things of God all the more. But with respect to effectual calling, that is a characteristic, that is an aspect of it that God enlightens our minds. We're being, uh, we're being, you know, we have that renewing of mind reality. We're to operate according to the fact that our minds are renewed, uh, not walking uh, as we used to walk and as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, but walking according to understanding given to us by God. Uh, notice as well, the language continues, and this is all language being drawn from, uh, from the Scriptures, uh, of course. All of these clauses with blessed new covenant promises in the background in the, in the Old Covenant that come to fruition with the advent of Christ, those sorts of things. Not that effectual calling wasn't operational in the Old Covenant, because it was, but we have this announcement of new covenant blessings in the old and then the advent of them with the coming of Christ. But the next clause, we have this wonderful language uh, that captures what it means to be effectually called. Notice, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them an heart of flesh. This is, is often something that you hear in the content of prayer as well. Uh, you know, praying God that you would with sinners remove starts, uh, hearts of stone, replace them with, with hearts of flesh, renewing their minds to own Christ. Um, so you can turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. We already, we already talked about the fact that um, Christ, in his engagement with Nicodemus, uses the language of born again. And remember, in that engagement with Nicodemus, um, he... He indicts Nicodemus a little bit by saying that he should have understanding with regards to these things. You know, Nicodemus says, am I supposed to you know, return to my mother's womb and, and be born again? He didn't understand the, the announcement, the prophetic announcement. He was supposed to understand the prophetic announcement that we have in Ezekiel 36 and 37 and its connection to what Jesus was saying with regards to someone needing to be born again to see the kingdom of God. In Ezekiel 36, notice beginning, uh, beginning at verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. If we were to have one passage in our minds where the you know, the, the confession is drawing from, I would say that it's this particular passage as the language continues there. There are other passages in mind and obviously just the, the, the whole of the Bible and announcing this and bringing it forth and all that sort of thing. But a lot of this language is drawn from this promise of the new covenant, of new covenant realities in Ezekiel 36. And notice the language that Ezekiel, uh, well, the God here is saying uh, the language that he uses, the, the amount of times that the words I will uh, are used in this particular announcement that stresses divine sovereignty, that it is God who makes sinners alive, that it is God who blesses uh, sinners salvifically with divine and saving power. I will take you. I will sprinkle. I will give. I will take. I will put. Uh, all of these wonderful I will statements uh, that cause us to sing uh, with humble hearts to God, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And so Ezekiel uh, 36, and, and there's some wonderful language in 37 with regards to, uh, with regards to dry bones and uh, the making alive of dead things. It's a wonderful language with regards to effectual calling. And hopefully you can see as... Uh, I mean, we're only spending a little bit of time in the doctrine here this morning, but just the, the number of, uh, of congruent, ang- or the number of, uh, of agreeing and consent of all parts angles that the Bible has with regards to these different ways in which it speaks with regards to divine power bringing sinners from, from deadness to life. It's a beautiful thing that God gives us in his word and the language continues here of all of the uh, of what it looks like what a, what effectual calling is renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually draw uh, effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ it, it, hopefully you also see here in this chapter the trinity we have those whom god hath predestinated and then we have by his Word and Spirit, and then to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the Spirit is implicitly mentioned here in the language of Ezekiel 36. It is the the triune God who saves us from first to last, midst and throughout, without a helper. And we see that throughout the chapter. It is a, a Trinitarian chapter, as is, of course, the whole confession, as is, of course, the whole Bible. And so it's a it's a wonderful set of clauses that we have here speaking with respect to effectual calling. This language too, it's a blessed thing. Our minds are spiritually and savingly renewed. And then this, this beautiful language where we were beforehand, as the confession says, averse to all good. We were beforehand contrary to all good, but God, by His almighty power here, determines them to that which is good. It's a wonderful thing. And reflecting back on our salvation as we, as we peruse the diary of our memories, as Spurgeon says, uh, uh, because there the witnesses of our guilt have faithfully recorded their names, we can now also peruse the diary of God's dealings with us and see that He has 
changed, brought us from out of this place where we are averse and opposite to all good and put us in Jesus Christ in union with Him, determining us to that which is good. It's a beautiful thing that we have in the amazing grace of effectual calling. Well, let's move on to look then at the, um, the stuff of paragraph 2 here, which now brings us to the power in effectual calling. Now, we've talked about it a little bit already, but this amplifies uh, the, the almighty power clause, the, the exclusivity of God in the matter of effectual calling. So the power in effectual calling. We notice uh, here that this, you know, this is where we, we sort of traffic in the language of monergism, one working. Effectual calling isn't synergistic, God working with man, man working with God. It is monergistic. It is God alone working. And we see that language of God alone working right at the beginning of paragraph 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. So we have this wonderful positive statement asserting with, with, with absolute clarity that it is God alone who is powerful in the matter of salvation. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. And we have that in the Scriptures clearly. If we just think of one verse, there are more than one. Uh, but if we think of uh, Ephesians 2, uh, you know, verse, verses 1 through 10, uh, that, is a, that is a section of divine Scripture that speaks with great clarity to this concise phrase that effectual calling is of God's free and special grace alone. So this positive statement is, of course, calculated to ensure that the reader understands based upon biblical revelation that God is alone powerful in salvation and it should be implied then that man is not active or powerful in the matter of salvation. But there is a negative clause that follows or, or these, these negative clauses that follow to ensure we understand um, the power of God exclusively in the matter of salvation. Notice not from anything at all foreseen in man. So the, the idea is sort of a, not sort of, it's, a, it's against a, a semi-Pelagian or uh, Arminian understanding of predestination that God's grace uh, comes to those whom God foresaw would believe the gospel. And so, you know, God looked through the tunnels of time to see in, the, you know, in this uh, potential universe that these particular people would believe the gospel uh, at a particular time, and so he then therefore predestinates them uh, and, and uh, brings effectual grace based upon that. No, the confession based upon, of course, the revelation of God in the Scriptures asserts very powerfully not from anything at all foreseen in man. It is, is, a, it is of God's free and special grace alone based upon his... Um, his unconditional election. So we have not from anything at all foreseen in man, and then we have the, the removal of the power of man in the matter of salvation because God, you know, God does not have co-workers in the matter of salvation. It is the fact that He from, uh, from beginning to end, midst and throughout, saves without a helper. And the language here says, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with His special grace, the creature being wholly passive therein. Now, I think you all probably have this, this copy of the Confession. 
Um, there are some printed versions and some versions that you'll find online that don't have the clause here where we read, nor from any power or agency in the creature, it then skips to being wholly passive therein. But the, the 1689 or 1677-88-89 properly has this clause in here, co-working with His special grace, and then the creature being wholly passive therein. And the, 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 the thrust behind this clause, as Jim Renahan notes, is to combat semi-Pelagianism, yes, but maybe more specifically the idea of congruent grace, which is a Roman Catholic doctrine, that man uh, can work himself or by some sort of initial minimal acts of unregenerate man, uh, God sort of rewards those acts by, um, by blessing him with, with uh, special grace. Um, that would mean that man then, in part, is, uh, is involved in the matter of working for salvation. So the confessionalists here are removing that from proper Christian contemplation. Man is not working with God in the matter of salvation. It is God alone by free and special grace who is at work in the matter of salvation. So the creature is wholly passive therein, and, and it, it, it punctuates this, it, it, it underscores this by bringing us back to the reality of the sinner before grace. Notice, being dead in trespasses, uh, being dead in sins and trespasses. So of course, one who is dead, spiritually dead in sins and trespasses, cannot do anything. He does not have any power nor any agency to be able to work in any measure for his salvation. He is without pow- He's not without power or agency. He has power and agency, but he is wholly averse to that which is good. He is wholly disabled in, uh, in his sins and in his trespasses, in his state of total depravity and total inability. He is unable to have any power or agency unto the meriting of special grace uh, and unto the meriting of any divine favor. So the creature is wholly passive therein. And that, I mean, that, that's the language of Christ in his discourse with Nicodemus. You must be born again. That language, uh, that language brings to the fore man's passivity and God's exclusive power and agency in the matter of salvation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. So the creature is wholly passive therein, being dead in, tresp- in sins and trespasses. And this blessed until, um, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, that wonderful language of, of quickening, being, being made alive, that language of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. You being dead in trespasses and sins, he made alive in Christ Jesus by his most blessed grace. We are, elect sinners, are quickened from this state of deadness in sins and trespasses. We are renewed. We are born again by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, as we go into to worship um, in uh, 42 and a half minutes, um, it's a blessed thing to reflect upon this truth. The, the God of amazing grace, the God of effectual calling. We worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who, according to His exclusive divine power and perfect agency, uh, brought us forth from 
from this state of deadness and sin and trespasses. I don't think we, 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 can, we can never exhaust the, the, the badness, the horribleness, the, the depth of, of depravity that we were in. As, however much we might peruse the diaries of our memories, we can never truly understand the filth and the, the wretchedness and the, the dirtiness, the, the reality of the deadness and sins and trespasses. And we can never exhaust then on the other side, the contemplations of divine and amazing and victorious grace. But we can know that we were once in this state. We do know that we were once in this wretched state of deadness and sins and trespasses. But God in His good pleasure and His timing, according to His most lovingness and most graciousness, quickened us and renewed us by His Holy Spirit. And notice then that there is an enabling so men, man, man uh, dead in trespasses and sins, elect sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. Before grace came, they were disabled, wholly averse to good, um, uh, depraved and, uh, 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 and unable, uh, having that being marked by inability in all the faculties of soul and body. But yet this side of grace, this side of effectual calling, he is enabled to answer the call. He's enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. So God makes us able. God makes us willing in the day of His power. We're, we're made to know. We're made to believe. We're made to understand the calling, the grace offered and conveyed in it. Where, whereas beforehand, we were opposed to Christ. Whereas beforehand, we were opposed to God. Whereas beforehand, we found ourselves uh, we found ourselves wholly enslaved and in bondage to sin. We now are made able to answer this blessed call and to embrace grace. What a blessed thing we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is grace offered in this call and there is grace conveyed in this call. Um, th- this, this final clause that we have here is, um, uh, it, you know, should should push us beyond what we've so far contemplated and, and reflect on the, the actual divine power that is, that is going on when God effectually calls someone. It's no less here, the, the confession reads, it's no less than the power which raised up Christ from the dead. What, what a wonderful thing we have in, in that, that the very power that raised Christ from the dead is the power which raises dead sinners to life. I, I think that's, you know, that's something that we have when we consider baptism and when we consider the language of Romans chapter 6 and our union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Um, you know, the, the recipient of baptism uh, hopefully can reflect on that not only at the point of their baptism, but also as they reflect back upon that means of grace and, and see that the very, the, very, the very time when they were effectually called, that power which brought them forth was the very power which raised their Savior from the dead. And as Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians 4, it's also the very power that God had in the creation of all things. That wonderful language where uh, we're brought forth to behold the face of Christ by the very power that God employed at the creation of all things when he spoke all things into existence. This is why it's such a, it's such a slight and it's such an insult 
to, to grace and to God to say that man has any part in his own salvation. It's a slight to the power of God. It's a slight to the exclusivity of His special grace, His free and special grace. It's a slight to, to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to say that man is a co-worker in the matter of his salvation. Well, some blessed things there. Just by way of note, paragraphs, uh, paragraph 4 um, really speaks, if paragra- paragraph 1 speaks concerning those whom God has predestinated unto life, Paragraph 4 speaks to those whom God hath not predestinated unto life. Um, There is a calling that goes forth that isn't effectual calling, that serves the effectual call, and that is the Gospel call. As the Word is proclaimed, as the Gospel is proclaimed, it's proclaimed in order that the elect sinners might be brought forth by that Word and then by the power of the Spirit. It's also given so that those who are, have not been predestinated unto life might be made to, to be known as the inheritors of everlasting damnation and divine judgment um, and to proclaim that, that other side of the double-edged sword that God judges as well by the proclamation of the Word, those who reject it. But then there's this paragraph 3 here, um, and without spending too much time on it, it what's in the background there? is primarily pastoral concerns at the time of the writing. Not that it isn't relevant for all time, but pastoral concerns at the time of uh, you know, the writing of these confessions. It's not just thrown in there as some sort of isolated theological uh, proposition detached from a context in this case. There was high infant mortality at the time of the, uh, you know, in the 17th century. And so, you know, parents perhaps consumed with bad theology, some bad superstition, uh, some, some wrong thoughts about who is saved and how they are saved, the confession wants to come here and bring comfort to parents um, in the loss of their infants and comfort, comfort to parents who have children uh, uh, who are other elect persons incapable of being outwardly called. You know, there is this idea that the deaf couldn't be saved. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Um, we have the fact that, um, you know, what, what is it? Uh, you know, uh, are, are infants, are all infants that die in infancy damned because they didn't hear the gospel proclaimed, um, and so therefore couldn't in time be uh, effectually called and be given the gift of faith? Well, the Baptists here. Um, uphold the reality of elect infants and those unable uh, of outwardly being called who are elect, that their salvation is not based upon something inherent like their own innocency, but is actually based upon the very salvation that we have, the blood and righteousness of Christ that avails for elect sinners. And so this paragraph is given as a comfort to parents in a time uh, where there was great discomfort based upon certain things, and it should bring comfort in our own day because the truth is everlastingly true, that all those whom, the God ha- whom God hath predestinated unto life will be saved, and this does include infants, and it does include those who are unable outwardly to respond to, to the gospel call. Well, let's go into worship rejoicing in the God of effectual calling, rejoicing in the God of amazing grace, uh, reflecting upon the fact that our salvation from beginning, beginning to end, midst and throughout is from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who saves without a helper. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your time. Uh, this time in doctrine, we rejoice in reflecting upon effectual calling uh, that You save us not by anything foreseen in us, uh, not by anything that we work up, but You save us solely and alone by amazing and victorious grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and wrought by Word and Spirit. We do pray that we would worship You aright in this forthcoming hour of worship, that You would help us to sing Your praises, that You would help us to rejoice that we would attend unto the, the elements of worship and that you would receive all honor and glory and praise in this place. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, any, any, question, uh, questions, any questions, rather, for the uh, two minutes and 37 seconds we have remaining? Yep. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're writing and glorying in these things in a context that we don't know anything of, really. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of good men. John Owen as well. Yeah, you know, these, these men were, were losing loved ones, were losing children to disease and, and all these sorts of things, and yet they gloried in this truth and, and defended it. And it brought pastoral comfort. It's, it's not just theology up here. It's, it's theology for, for comfort to those who are grieving and those who uh, are perplexed. So, yeah. This is the kind of theologically based comfort that we saw in uh, Pastor Butler's essay on impassibility and sick. Yep. The whole idea right. that when we're dealing with the pits on Thursday, God is impassible, God hasn't changed. Any Sunday and Thursdays. Yeah. And then the other thing that was in mind listening to the explanation of the initial election, this whole God responding to foreseen activity, it seems our opinion then hold on to simplicity, act as parents, and a bunch of other good stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. I hope this one is short. As in elect infants dying in infancy, are there non elect infants dying in infancy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's the that's the big question, and that's the question that, that often comes up. Um, I think the re, the resolve uh, the resolve in this is always because there is a uh, there's a particular a particular lack of clarity. There's a lack of clarity with regards to the, the you know the exact theology and answer for that. What we can resign ourselves to is the fact that the the judge of all the earth does right according to his will and good pleasure. Um, and I think I think that's where we safely acquiesce is in I'll that reality. That. But uh, Jim, any of that? Yeah, I think the language there is very, very wise. Uh, there's two schools of thought. Some believe all infants go to heaven, but probably you haven't heard of the other school of thought. They think all infants go to hell. And so I think what our Baptist brothers did, using the language elect infants. It, it speaks to the truth of God's word as a whole. The Bible doesn't say every infant that dies goes to heaven or every infant that dies goes to hell. But based on what we learn from scripture, the normal and ordinary way of calling the elect is through the word of God. So the question comes, what about the infants? Or what about the people that are perhaps mentally handicapped that can't receive propositional truth? So I think they've, they've worded it wisely to acknowledge that God can save in a way that is different than in Romans 10, 17. But it doesn't obligate God to save everybody. So it's it's going as far as scripture, I think, allows. And I, you know, I used to struggle with this young as a younger pastor 
I've really come to appreciate the wise course that they pursued. Spurgeon, for instance, dropped the word elect when he republished the confession. He didn't like elect infants, so it became infants dying in infancy, which he believed every infant that died went to heaven. And again, that's a, you know, people have that position and view, but when you ask the scriptures, the scriptures are silent when it comes to the disposition ultimately of infants and, and the mentally handicapped. That works for me. I'm just saying, yeah, how far do we take will not the God of the universe do right? That's where we go. Yeah. That's yeah. it, right there. Genesis um, 18. But but, but uh, if, if that's the case, then you know what? I can do whatever I want. Will the God of the universe will do right by me if I if I confess uh, faith and grace in, in the Lord Jesus Christ? But those who don't, yeah. mm -hmm. what do they do? So, I just reminded, you guys talking, remind me in this verse, the wicked are estranged from the womb, mm -hmm. uh, Psalm 58.3. Yeah. So, we, God sees what we do not see. Mm -hmm. We make all kinds of judgments of who's good and who's not good. Mm -hmm. But, I personally, I find it a real comfort that God does not leave such an important question as eternal salvation up to a bunch of lunkheads. Mm -hmm which is all of us. <laughs> right, yeah. And, yeah. you know, he, he's outside of time. Mm -hmm. He sees, he knows, and he's not going to lose a one that That's right. Is. And That's I, right. I find that really comforting. Yeah, very so good. So man, man acts emotionally, whereas God acts yeah. not acting emotionally. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, exactly. We want everybody to be safe. Right.